We the People of the We the People podcast want to hear from you on how We the People is doing with this We the People podcast. Please visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash survey and complete our five-minute survey, which takes longer than it takes to introduce the survey. Please be sure to fill out the survey and rate the podcast on iTunes and other platforms. Your feedback ensures we can keep growing and improving this crucial space for constitutional debate. And as always, feel free to email me, jrosen at constitutioncenter.org, and let me know how we're doing. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis in order to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. This week, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in United States versus Microsoft, a case about whether the government can use a warrant to force tech companies who store their data in other countries to turn over that data to law enforcement. The case raises important questions about the Fourth Amendment, the future of data, privacy, and international law. Joining us to discuss this important case are two scholars who have contributed important amicus briefs. Benjamin Battles is Solicitor General of Vermont, which filed an amicus brief with 34 other states and the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico in support of the federal government. And Vivek Krishnamurthy is visiting lecturer at UC Davis School of Law and clinical attorney with the Cyber Law Clinic at Harvard Law School. He filed an amicus brief for the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Privacy. Ben, Vivek, thank you so much for joining. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Ben, you were in the courtroom this morning. Of course, I'll ask you about the arguments and the atmosphere and, and uh, uh, your temperature on the court. But before we do that, as Professor Kingsfield said, state the facts and, 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 and fundamentally, what is the federal government's legal position in the Microsoft case? Certainly. Uh, so this, this case started uh, several years ago when uh, the federal government sought a warrant under a law known as the Stored Communications Act which allows uh, law enforcement to go to court and if they demonstrate probable cause, get a, uh, a warrant that they serve on a electronic communication provider who then uh, must pull their files related to the, the individual described in the warrant and then provide it to law enforcement. Uh, it's a very frequently used tool by law enforcement. Uh, and in this case, uh, everything went according to plan until Microsoft, who is the provider in the case, got the warrant, uh, which sought information connected to an individual under investigation for drug trafficking and said that this data is stored on our, uh, our server in Dublin, Ireland. And accordingly, we believe that uh, producing it from our Irish server would be an extraterritorial application of federal law. And that case went up to the Second Circuit, which ultimately found in favor of Microsoft, and and then uh, the DOJ appealed, and that was what was being argued today. Great. Thank you very much for that introduction. Vivek, the Trump administration is challenging a lower court ruling from the Second Circuit that barred the use of a warrant uh, under the Stored Communications Act to get the suspected drug traffickers' emails, as Ben said. 
And Chief Justice Warrant, uh, Roberts in the, uh, today suggested that a ruling from Microsoft to block the search warrant could basically make it impossible for the government to get email someone sent from the Supreme Court building to someone a block away if it was chosen to be stored on a survey outside the United States. And other justices expressed concern that law enforcement would be hobbled as a result by this offshore storage. What is the position of Microsoft and those like the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Privacy for why it is important not to allow these U.S. warrants to be served on data stored abroad? So just to clarify uh, one small point, which is that the client that I represented, who's the United Nations Special Rapporteur, doesn't take a position on on the outcome of the case. So he uh, was an amicus in support of neither party, uh, who obviously has some important things to say about the right to privacy, which we can talk about. Uh, Microsoft's position, uh, and this is paraphrasing uh, their submissions to the court in their briefs, is that uh, the problem is that when data is stored in a foreign country, it is subject to the laws of that foreign country. Just like any any item or any person or anything that is on the soil of a particular country is first and foremost subject to the jurisdiction of that country. So the first problem arises with the fact that the emails are stored in Ireland. So Ireland has a sovereign interest in uh, uh, its territory and what's on that territory. And usually at international law, it's seen as uh, a problem if another sovereign invades the territory or compels someone else, someone on that territory, to do something uh, relating to law enforcement uh, for, 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 for the other country. So that's the starting, that's one of the policy concerns here. But more narrowly, uh, Microsoft rests this case in part on the presumption against extraterritoriality. So looking at the Stored Communications Act and we're looking at 18 U.S.C. 2703, which is the provision that authorizes, uh, uh, sets out the procedure for law enforcement, state, federal, and local, uh, to obtain electronically stored information from providers such as Microsoft. Microsoft's argument is that all the entire provi- provision uh, is essentially a domestic provision that applies to content stored in the United States and its access by U.S. law enforcement agencies. So to answer the Chief Justice, Microsoft would likely have said that there is a procedure to get that email if it's stored somewhere else. It involves enlisting the help of the Irish government uh, through a mutual legal assistance treaty or some other international process to go into Ireland and retrieve those emails. Now, of course, there's a lot of problems with that, uh, as Ben can tell you in terms of the efficiency of that process. But I think that's sort of the legal answer uh, to the Chief Justice's question. Thank you very much for channeling Microsoft in response to the Chief Justice. And I'll now ask Ben about his uh, important suggestion in a SCOTUS blog symposium on the case that the whole question is where the disclosure occurs. Ben, you write in your contribution in the the relevant cases, Morrison against National Australia Bank, uh, and that regardless of whether the relevant law focuses on disclosure to law enforcement, um, as the United States argues, or on user privacy, as Microsoft argues, the relevant conduct occurs in the United States because that's where the actual uh, emails are read. Tell us more about that and why that is legally significant in your view. Sure. So, as uh, as Vivek mentioned, this this case really centers on whether uh, this statute is being applied extraterritorially. And under the Supreme Court's precedents, including the Morrison case, you look first to see whether the statute uh, 
you know, was intended to apply extraterritorially. And uh, there's no dispute here that the statute was not. So that really isn't an issue in this case. And then the uh, the second point is whether whether the application, in this case, the uh, the collection of the data to respond to a warrant is a extraterritorial application. And you need to look at the the focus. What is the focus of the statute and and the relevant conduct? And uh, and so the the government argued, and as did we in, in our briefs, that the focus here is really disclosure. That's, you know, the caption of the statute talks about required disclosures and the disclosure, there's no dispute, happens within the United States. Microsoft has argued that it's this is really about privacy and where the data is stored is where the right to privacy is located. And I, you know, we, we have argued that that position I think is difficult to maintain when you look at the practices of not only Microsoft, but some other providers like Google who, who actually is constantly moving their data around the globe on a network of servers. So you could have a person, as we had cases, a person in Vermont who's being investigated for a crime in Vermont, and they have a Gmail account, and they're, you know, Google, for their own business and network reasons, moves the data and kind of breaks it up into chunks and moves it around the globe. And then all of a sudden the privacy is invaded in countries around the world uh, from Finland to Singapore, just because uh, because an employee in California at Google's headquarters is responding to a warrant, and we think it's a much more logical outcome to say that you know the the invasion of privacy is 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 either happening where the person is located or where the disclosure is happening. So, Vivek, what is Microsoft's uh, response to that claim? The very first question at the oral argument was from Justice Sotomayor. She responded to the government's claim that the Stored Communications Act requires disclosure by the United States of information related to the United States and here by a United States provider. And she said it actually requires a search. Uh, and uh, why do you describe it as it's only a disclosure in the United States when it's really a search which takes place outside the United States? Yeah, I think I, I think it's clear that something is happening beyond the territory of the United States. It's true that Microsoft would be producing the emails in the United States, but something happens in Ireland, right? Not, it, it's not like nothing happens in Ireland. The data is there, right? And if we analogize to the analog context, right, and there's a lot of analogies flying around this case, uh, Microsoft has to do something in Ireland, right, with something that is stored there. So if these were paper records, Right, uh, Microsoft would have to photocopy them or, uh, you know, put them in someone's uh, in, in an envelope and send them to the United States. So there's an interference that happens there. How we characterize that uh, in two ways is important. So the first is what is the substantive content of the right to privacy, and we can certainly look at it from the narrow focus of how do we interpret the Historic Communications Act and what's the focus of the statute. And reasonable people can disagree, and the Supreme Court will tell us, I'm sure, when they write uh, their opinion in this case, right? But it is important to note that at least as far as Ireland and the European Union are concerned, uh, their laws and their privacy laws do apply to data being stored there. So in their view, there is something significant happening vis-a-vis uh, -vis their laws when Microsoft takes email from Ireland and sends it to the United States. The other thing I want to push back on is this idea that the government 
uh, you know, has in its its brief, and, and Ben just alluded to it, that Microsoft has decided for its own business and network reasons to store email in, in different places. Now, certainly, there are business reasons to store uh, different pieces of data in different places, but there are other reasons, too. There are legal and compliance reasons. I think it's important to note that most uh, uh, of the global uh, internet providers, uh, providers of internet services, offer different terms of service in different geographies to comply with different, with different local laws. So if you are a user of Google or Microsoft uh, in Europe, you're confronted with different terms of service and European uh, compliance with European law is greatly facilitated for those companies by storing their data in the European Union. And that's true in other places too. It's actually been a very important tool for technology companies dealing with jurisdictional challenges uh, in dealing with some regimes that are less savory uh, in thinking very carefully about where they locate their data. So it's not just business convenience and cost convenience. There are some deep legal compliance issues that underlie that. And one of the things that we need to think about, one of the things that's very unusual about this case, as someone who's been involved in this conversation about law enforcement access to data, is that the difficulties that people like Ben are facing uh, are slightly ironic because the United States hosts more of the world's data than any other country. And usually the shoe is on the other foot. It's foreign governments who are trying to access data that's stored here and running into the mirror image of the problem that uh, uh, the U.S. attorney in uh, the Southern District of New York is facing in this case. Thank you very much for that. Um, ben, I, you may, may want to respond to that last point, and I also would like to put on the table the claim by Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor that this is a 1986 statute, and the reality is Congress just wasn't thinking about this uh, storage outside of the United States. Things have changed, said Justice Sotomayor, and there's a bill that's being proposed by bipartisan senators that would give the federal government most of the protection it wants, but with greater protection against foreign countries. So why shouldn't we leave the status quo as it is and let Congress pass a bill? Sure, and I'll respond to, to Vivek's last point first. And, you know, I think he raises a, a very valid point. And, you know, I found reading some of the other amicus briefs that the uh, the brief put in by the UK, which was in support of neither party, but talked about this and how it's sort of when they seek data from the US, that it's often a lengthy process. And under there, uh, when they go through the MLAT, it takes, which is the mutual, mutual legal assistance treaty process, it takes, uh, you know, oftentimes more than six months. And that as a result of this decision, when they seek data, you know, for example, from Google, uh, and then it goes to the U.S. and then the U.S. authorities are not able to obtain a warrant because of the Microsoft decision. So it's this kind of a, a vicious circle, but which all points toward, as you mentioned, that uh, this is an area that Congress uh, is taking a look at and should take a look at. And there's a bill uh, that's known as the Cloud Act right now that's been introduced in Congress that has a lot of support, I think both from uh, DOJ and from state law enforcement, as well as from Microsoft and the other tech providers. Uh, and I think that's, I think everyone believes that that bill or something like it should be debated and considered and that Congress really needs to develop a nuanced uh, solution to this very complicated problem. 
the government's position as uh, DOJ argued today was that, you know, the status quo really has been compliance with these warrants. And it was really not until, and it, it's a fairly new development, this of storage around the world, but it's not brand new. And for the past, you know, five, 10 years, providers have been complying with these warrants. And it wasn't until uh, Microsoft made this argument and uh, the Second Circuit accepted it that uh, compliance stopped. And and there has not, uh, by and large, at least, I, I won't speak for everyone, but at least, you know, from the state's experience who, who use this process uh, uh, very frequently, there has n- never been a significant problem with providers saying they're they're facing conflicting legal obligations and they're unable to comply. So the government's position today at the court was that the status quo really is that providers have to comply. And to the extent they have an argument about, you know, their obligations under international law, then they uh, that would be an argument as to why they should not suffer a penalty for being held in contempt. So there's still an avenue to sort of raise those concerns. Uh, but the status quo is that you have to comply with these uh, Stored Communication Act warrants. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, Vivek, tell us more about the Cloud Act. What does it hold? How does it balance uh, privacy interests against the interests of law enforcement? Uh, should it pass and will it? Absolutely. So the Cloud Act is sort of the latest in a series of bills that have been proposed really for the last six or seven years to try to deal with this problem. Um, And it does a couple of things. So the first is that it makes clear that the stored, a warrant issued under the Stored Communications Act does apply extraterritorially. So that is one feature of the, so it would basically moot the Microsoft argument case uh, by statutorily declaring that the Stored Communication Act does uh, apply to uh, data stored anywhere in the world by a um, electronic uh, communications provider that is jurisdictionally present in the United States. So if there's personal jurisdiction over that provider in the United States, you have to go and get the data from anywhere in the world. So that is consistent with the current law on subpoenas and business records, right? So a company that is present in the United States has to go retrieve a business record uh, situated anywhere in the world. So that's part one. Uh, Another piece of it is that it formalizes uh, a comedy analysis, right? So to the extent that a provider faces a competing legal obligation somewhere else, Uh, the court must consider that, and it sets out a number of factors for the court to consider, such as the severity of the crime, the uh, uh, kind of foreign interest in protecting the privacy, uh, a number of other, uh, you know, non-exhaustive list of comedy kinds of factors. As Ben said, we could already use comedy today if we wanted to, but it formalizes that. But the third piece, which I think is really important, is that it creates a pathway for foreign governments to make direct demands of US-based providers for um, electronic communications uh, that they have stored anywhere in the world. Now, the stored communications, so in as much as we're having this debate today about whether a SCA warrant applies beyond the territory of the United States, the way that the SCA provisions are written 
it says that the only the only government that can ask for a warrant, the government entities are defined as U.S. government entities, federal, state, and local. So, uh, what a number, what most U.S. companies have done, which are the major internet giants, uh, they take the view correctly, I think, that they cannot directly comply with foreign legal process. Uh, to provide the contents of electronic communications that are stored um, and controlled by their U.S. legal entities, right, without getting a U.S. warrant first, which is why foreign governments are forced to go through the mutual legal assistance treaty process, much to their frustration. So what happens under uh, the Cloud Act is that it creates a procedure for foreign governments to make direct and valid requests of these companies insofar as those foreign governments are vetted. So what would happen is the United States would enter into ex executive agreements with a foreign government that meets certain criteria in terms of the quality of rule of law, of its criminal justice system, uh, things of that nature, to be determined uh, by a joint declaration of the Attorney General and the Secretary of State and to be reviewed every, triennially. And then once this uh, executive agreement is in place, you would have uh, bilateral opportunities for the governments of the two parties to make direct requests of entities in those countries for email. And then there's some important privacy protections in there. So, for example, there's a deal that is being negotiated with the UK. So under the UK agreement, if, if this all passes and we have an executive agreement with the UK, the UK would not be allowed to request data pertaining to United States persons. So that's people resident in the United States or United States citizens anywhere in the world. And that would apply reciprocally, reciprocally between both parties. Now, some of the privacy uh, community see this as sort of uh, significantly weakening privacy protections. Um, I'm not sure that's necessarily the case, um, but I do think that this sort of approach of having uh, uh, a, a reciprocal basis whereby foreign governments get access to data stored by U.S. companies and the United States gets access to data stored overseas uh, is the kind of thing that we do need to solve this problem on a durable basis. Very interesting. So, Ben, your thoughts on both the merits of the Cloud Act? It, looks, it sounds like an extremely nuanced example of a proposal that uh, many scholars have made, including Jen Daskal, who in a great National Constitution Center symposium on the Microsoft case, said that uh, Congress should balance factors like data location, target location, nationality, location of the provider, and the strength of the government's interest. And then I really want to ask you about the, the politics of privacy that the, the Supreme Court, is, as Orrin Kerr of GW Law School has said, is tended to follow Congress's lead rather than making privacy law. And yet, uh, there are plenty of examples of bipartisan bills like the Geolocational Privacy Act that would restrict the ability of the government to track people's movements in public that have bipartisan support but just can't pass because Congress is really polarized. So is the Cloud Act good? Will it pass? And, and w what would a Supreme Court decision on either side have on the likelihood that the Cloud Act will pass? Well, I think the Cloud Act is an important step forward. Uh, you know, it's... It's something I think most of the players involved in this dispute believe that Congress really does. I, I think virtually everyone believes that Congress really does need to address this issue. And the Cloud Act uh, does a lot of good from the law enforcement perspective. It makes clear that we can have access to this data and it also formalizes 
as, as Vivek mentioned, a, a mechanism for providers to raise international comedy concerns. Uh, and, you know, my state, along with, I think, many of the states, about 35 other states recently submitted a, a letter to Congress in support of the Cloud Act. So it, it certainly has our support. Uh, as for the chances that it will pass, uh, that might be above my pay grade. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think there is a, there is some momentum. Uh, and and but whether or not Congress will be able to get it done is, I, I think, anyone's guess. Uh, I, I would hope with the amount of you know, sort of support from the different stakeholders involved in this issue that it, it would get serious consideration. Uh, actually, it was introduced by Senator Hatch, who was in the courtroom this morning. So he was paying attention. <laughs> Fascinating. I'll, I'll ask you more about the arguments in, in just a moment. But but Vivek, uh, the, the, as I mentioned, Justices Sotomayor and Ginsburg said, given the fact that the Cloud Act is pending, why not leave the status quo as it is and, and make... Uh, uh, the Stored Communications Act uh, not apply extraterritorially. Is the government arguing the opposite? And uh, if the Cloud Act doesn't pass, how might both sides weigh that as they consider which way to come down in this case? I think it's a really difficult question to answer um, because a, a complete victory by by either side or, or for either side in some ways uh, may frustrate. You know, it would cause it would cause different sets of problems of its own. I mean, I fully agree with Ben that we do need a statutory solution to this problem and to a lot of other issues that are cropping up because the Stored Communications Act is extremely outdated, right? But one could imagine a world in which Microsoft wins. And we say that uh, uh, the the Stored Communications Act does not apply extraterritorially. Uh, in that world, uh, again, any data that's stored anywhere outside the United States would be subject to the mutual legal assistance treaty process. And then there's the added complication, which Ben started to allude to you know, a few minutes ago, uh, about how some providers store their data. I think it's really important to know or to understand that un until... Uh, Microsoft or Google go and look for the data, they actually have no idea where it is. And this presents a big problem for the government, right? So you know that, you know, johnsmith at gmail.com uh, is the email address that you're interested in. And, uh, you know, you've connected it to some kind of crime here in the United States, let's say drug trafficking or something else. But uh, you as a government have very little indication of where in the world it's stored, right? Um, so having a legal rule whereby, again, the, you know, the happenstance of where it's stored determines what the legal process is. And again, you have to go and apply for the warrant before Microsoft says, guess what? It's in Ireland. That's not a very good world. Um, on the other side, I think it's a very real concern that if the United States Supreme Court says that our... Uh, vintage 1986 law uh, governing electronic searches, uh, we're going to interpret it to say that anywhere in the world, a, a, a corporation that is subject to U.S. jurisdiction must go and retrieve that data. I really do think that the uh, kind of slippery slope argument that Microsoft and the amici who are supporting it are making uh, is something we have to consider, right? Um, the fact of the matter is that these large internet companies are practically everywhere. They have significant jurisdictional contacts with dozens and dozens of countries around the world, some of whom have uh, much weaker rule of law than our country. 
Um, and again, those are the very countries right now that are frustrated by the difficulties they are experiencing with the MLAT system. So I think a, a big win for the government is going to increase um, the pressure on the companies to comply with those foreign orders in a big way that would be bad for privacy. So again, um, I do think that solving this problem requires a kind of nuance um, that is very hard to get in a court decision because the court has to decide the case presented in front of it. And it can do so in the wisest possible way to be sure. Um, but I don't think it can really solve the problem. Thanks so much for that. Um, uh, ben, I've buried the lead by not asking you, you know, what was it like in the courtroom? I, I've been just reading from the transcript and focused on a few questions, but I wonder which ones jumped out at you. And the early news reports uh, include uh, pieces like uh, this one from Bloomberg, which says uh, some high court justices back U.S. in email fight with Microsoft. The, the early press coverage thought there might be a majority for the government. Was that your sense? And give us a sense of the argument. That was my sense, although it's it's difficult to, to get a read on, on, on how you get to five uh, because there you know, I, I think the chief justice and Justice Alito were asking very tough questions of Microsoft, and they seemed like they uh, were supportive of the government's argument. Um, yeah, you know, Justice Thomas, uh, as is his his usual practice, did not ask any questions, and, uh, and Justice Sotomayor, I think, had the toughest questions for the government, and then and then everyone else sort of was asking questions of both sides. But I, I do think that Microsoft was getting the more difficult questions about, about hypotheticals involving, you know, I, I think the, the problem the court was having was that giving the providers sort of unilateral control to sort of store data wherever they want and by so doing, being able to prevent, uh, you know, and stymie legitimate law enforcement investigations, you know, by deciding to put, you know, all their U.S. customers' data in Canada, you know, and and that was that was a hypothetical I think the chief asked. Uh, so that was my general sense. And there were some interesting questions, you know, going back to what Vivek said about about it being difficult for the court to really craft a nuanced solution here. There was, you know, Justice Kennedy did ask that uh, pretty much that exact question was, does it have to be all or nothing? Uh, and I don't think there was a, a clear answer there. Uh, and you know, I, I got the sense that the court is going to want to try to rule narrowly, whichever way they go. And, and I think whoever loses is going to be, you know, I think regardless of who wins or loses, th there's going to be a lot of problems that have not been solved, and that a lot of room for Congress still to act. So I don't think the outcome of this case is going to to doom legislative efforts one way or the other. Um, it may it may it may light a fire under it, um, but. We'll have to wait and see. Um, always, always a good uh, policy when it comes to predicting Supreme Court outcomes. Uh, Vivek, imagine the government does win by some majority at the court. What would the dissent look like if you were writing it? And let's what the, what the heck? Let's just channel Justice Sotomayor, who argued so powerfully in the Jones GPS case that the court needs to reconceive its entire approach to privacy based on the idea that when you turn over data to a third party, you abandon all expectation of privacy in it. Would, would the court be missing a fundamental opportunity to re rethink uh, territoriality and privacy in the age of cloud computing? And, and what might Justice Sotomayor's dissent look like? Uh, 
That's a, this is a very dangerous question to try to <laughs> uh, uh, divine what Justice Sotomayor might say, um, and uh, whether she'll be in dissent or not, uh, I, I can't tell. That being said, I think Justice Sotomayor sees this case in the light of a, of a larger set of cases around digital privacy, right? And certainly in in Riley. Uh, and, you know, if we can, from what we can tell from the argument last term in Carpenter, she's been thinking a lot about the third party doctrine, right? Which, of course, is the doctrine that uh, if you voluntarily turn over information to a third party, you have no expectation of privacy in that information, which is why uh, bank records, of course, are subpoenable, right? They're not subject to a warrant. Uh, why telephone dialing records similarly are, are, are the government can obtain with a subpoena. They don't need to get a probable cause warrant. And I think this is lurking in the background of this case. It lurks in the government's argument that the Stored Communications Act warrant uh, under uh, 18 U.S.C. 2703 is this hybrid of a subpoena and a warrant, right? That, uh, yes, it requires probable cause, but it's executed in a subpoena in that you get the provider to turn over the information. And that is sort of at the root of the government's theory, that regardless of where in the world uh, the emails are, are stored, uh, Microsoft has a duty under the sort of Bank of Nova Scotia line of cases to go and retrieve them because they're Microsoft's records, except that they're not. Uh, the email is yours and the email is mine. And of course, there's been a lot of litigation about what happens when uh, uh, email and other kinds of electronic providers scan your uh, the contents of your messages for delivering advertisements, for example. There's been a lot of litigation around that. So I would guess that a concurrence or a dissent by Justice Sotomayor would probably queue up some of these larger issues, right? So regardless of, of, of the kind of jurisdictional nexus question of whether the U.S. has jurisdiction, I think we do need a more fundamental rethink of how we protect privacy in the electronic age. So not only is the Stored Communications uh, uh, Act out of date, one could argue that the third party doctrine is too, and that our entire approach to electronic privacy needs to be reconsidered. Uh, because we sort of have a, a situation right now where uh, wiretapping, right, real-time interception of electronic communications is subject to the strongest protections. Uh, store communications are to, you know, the warrant or the normal warrant standard. And then, you know, so-called metadata, the envelope information, the to and from and subject lines in your emails are protected essentially at the subpoena level, right? Uh, but a lot of scholarship, you know, has sort of made the point that really in this day and age, uh, where we store decades worth of information with providers, we need to have a new set of legal standards that looks at the extent of a search, uh, you know, the, the uh, amount of data being covered rather than the category of information that's being taken. So I think that, you know, she might well queue up some of those issues uh, in, in her opinion, if, she, if she's the right one. Ben Vivek raises uh, a, a provocative point. Uh, in, uh, so, some of the justices have been moving toward an, a point that, uh, an approach that would balance the invasiveness of the search against the degree of suspicion and the, and the seriousness of the crime when it comes to electronic searches. If the uh, and, and, and the and the Cloud Act uh, adopts a similar approach, if the court were to constitutionalize an approach like that, would law enforcement have a problem? Well, that's a tough question to be speaking for all of law enforcement. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, what the heck? Someone's got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, I mean, I think there's, you know, in sort of Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, there's a sort of a reasonableness uh, built into it. And I, I think it does. I, I think Vivek raises, uh, you know, a very significant point where you're talking about, does it make sense to treat sort of a warrant that's asking for one message the same as one that's asking for the entire contents of an email or a cloud account, which obviously, uh, you know, could have someone's whole life documented. Uh, and there does seem to be room there for, you know, moving forward for those those ideas to work their way into the jurisprudence. Vivek, what do other countries do? You've written about this, but is there a European approach to extraterritoriality that the uh, U.S. Congress or courts might profitably follow? So there are different approaches in different countries, and I think it it really the approaches that different countries have taken um, have a lot to do with the kind of economic structure and the kinds of trade agreements that they're in. So in the European Union, there has been. Uh, again, because it's a highly integrated economic and political bloc, uh, there have been moves towards uh, basically alighting a lot of the differences that come come up in this case. So, for example, um, there is something new in Europe called the European Investigative Order, which is uh, essentially a kind of a search warrant that uh, if issued in one European member country, uh, that is uh, uh, subject to this arrangement can be directly executed and enforced in another country. So, for example, a German court could say, we need this email uh, from this provider that happens to be domiciled in Austria. And the German police would go to the Austrian court and uh, turn over the warrant. And it's directly enforceable in, Austri in Austria uh, unless some objection is made in Austria. So that's one model uh, that some scholars have suggested as a way out of this particular uh, difficulty is that we come up with an international system of search warrants. Now, I think that has not been easy to do even in Europe where, you know, again, uh, things are so highly integrated that you don't need to show your passport when you travel between uh, different European countries. So there's a high level of cooperation and coordination. At the other end of the spectrum, um, countries that are concerned about this issue are passing so-called data localization laws. Uh, Russia is the example uh, par excellence of this phenomenon, but many other countries have passed uh, such laws as well, uh, where basically if you're a provider and you want to do business in that country, you must store all data belonging to customers in that country uh, within the borders so that you... Um, uh, can be made to respond to that country's domestic legal process, right? So this is something that Brazil has done to some extent. And in fact, you know, a couple of dozen countries have passed data localization laws that may not cover uh, everyday emails, but that do cover certain kinds of sensitive information, like health information has to be located within your borders, uh, or contracts are written with cloud providers for governments uh, specifying that, uh, you know, the French government's data must be stored in France. Uh, so that's the other response that we see. Interesting. Uh, ben, if the government wins here, might other countries be reluctant to store their data in the United States, or would such a ruling have no impact over their decision about where to store their data? I think that remains to be seen. I mean, there, I, I've, you know, a number of the amici briefs, as Vivek mentioned, talked about this trend of data localization and, 
And I, I think to, to some degree, that's probably unavoidable. Uh, you know, to extend you're doing business in a country, you have to comply with their laws and laws territorial, even if cyberspace is not. Uh, I, I do, there have been, you know, in some briefs and talks about and our arguments made that, that that's what will happen is that will hurt U.S. business. Uh, but I, you know, I think it, it's, it's very difficult to say because it will depend on how the the court writes the decision and whether Congress responds. And, and also just to push back a little bit on that is that, you know, providers were complying with these warrants up and up until uh, the Microsoft, uh, the Second Circuit's decision, and it did not seem to uh, be negatively impacting the U.S. providers. Great. Um, Vivek, I've, I've, I've asked you to ch- channel Justice Sotomayor, and now I want you to channel Justice Brandeis, so my, my, <laughs> my, my hero. Just set aside the existing case law and the third-party doctrine and, and even the Cloud Act, and if you were writing from scratch and were trying to protect people's privacy interests in data stored abroad, what kind of access rules uh, do you think the federal law and the Constitution should require? Well, I think an interesting starting point would actually be to address some of our jurisprudence on who enjoys Fourth Amendment protections. And I think this is actually a big driving factor behind this case. It's part of the subtext of the case, right? Uh, You cannot understand this case unless you think about the aftermath of the Snowden revelations in 2013 and what it did to the image of the United States, of the United States government, and of U.S.-based technology companies. I mean, rightly or wrongly, uh, people in the rest of the world uh, saw the United States as running roughshod over the right to privacy. And, I mean, we do have a bit of a constitutional issue in this country in that uh, the courts have ruled that uh, the Fourth Amendment does not extend extraterritorially um, uh, to non-citizens, right? The only people who enjoy Fourth Amendment protections and interactions with the U.S. government beyond U.S. borders are American nationals and U.S. persons. Uh, So I think a a first piece of it is uh, either as a matter of constitutional law or of statutory law is that, and and this is as much about optics as it is about legality, is that we do need to, to recognize in our law that everyone has a right to privacy. And the Obama administration started to do this uh, post-Snowden in terms of limiting, uh, uh, placing some prudential limits on the use of the intelligence authorities uh, to target non-Americans, right? So that's one piece of the puzzle, right? Building, building trust. Now, a second piece is that I start with the premise that a global and distributed internet is a very good thing, right? It's a good thing for humanity. Uh, because it allows for the free dissemination of information at low cost. And the fact that this data is scattered all over the world uh, is not just a, a financial expedient for technology companies. It, it leads to the resiliency of the network, right? It's a good thing that in the event uh, something terrible happens in one place, uh, our data is backed up somewhere far away, which may be across a national border, right? So that's the second starting premise is that I think we actually have something that we want to protect fundamentally. This architecture of this network is a good thing, but we do need to very legitimately accommodate uh, the interests of law enforcement in the United States and elsewhere uh, in investigating crimes, right? 
So in some ways, the solution that has been proposed in, in the Cloud Act does a very good job of, of reconciling some of these factors uh, by allowing the internet as we know it to continue to exist, to require that governments around the world who are interested in accessing data that happens to have some kind of nexus to the U.S. because a U.S. company holds it, to abide by basic international human rights principles in terms of rule of law, uh, fair judicial process, uh, et cetera, right? Uh, so I, I feel like the statutory solution that is being proposed, combined with a little bit of prudential expansion of U.S. privacy jurisprudence to recognize that every individual enjoys uh, a right to privacy and has an interest in privacy, you know, could actually be the, the, the foundations of a very durable solution. Uh, many thanks for that. Uh, ben, I'll ask you a version of the same question, and then we'll have closing arguments. If you were channeling, I don't know, maybe... Chief Justice Taft, who wrote the majority opinion in the in the wiretapping case over Brandeis's dissent, what do you think uh, an ideal set of constitutional and statutory uh, protections for uh, data stored abroad should be? And yeah, I know I know we're supposed to be uh, playing opposing parts, but I but I think I largely agree with uh, what what Vivek said, and that you know that. A global internet is is a good thing and is an, an important asset uh, for humanity, and you know that being said, there still has to be compliance with with local law. But but I, I think you know a, a nice aspect of the Cloud Act is is it really does encourage uh, different countries to work out these agreements because I, I don't know that there's any way uh, any good solution forward that doesn't involve. Uh, you know, international relations and, and sort of agreements between countries because countries are going to have their own laws and they and that's and they should and they will want to. But in order for the global Internet to flourish, you know, there needs to be some some mechanism to reconcile uh, different legal requirements. And, and that it seems like you know, the Cloud Act or something like it that provides incentives for that to happen and also makes makes clear that simply because a provider decides that you know for for whatever reason you know i, I think i understand what vivek had said earlier about you know business decisions but it's I, I think the problem the court was having and that uh, law enforcement has is that regardless of the provider's reason for doing it it's the decision is entirely in the provider's hands to sort of take evidence out of the reach of law enforcement. Um, so the, the Cloud Act or, or something like that that makes clear that just because data is stored on a foreign server, that doesn't mean that it can't be accessed by law enforcement, but also providing a mechanism for greater international cooperation and respect for, for international law. Many thanks for that uh, and for that uh, uh, bipartisan note on which we're ending the uh, substantive part of our discussion. It's now time for closing arguments. These are the brief three-minute statements where you sum up your central position in the case. Uh, we clip these and they invariably go viral because they're so thrilling in their sustained educational value. Uh, so the question is the one posed in the case. And the first uh, one is to you, Vivek, um, why do you believe that U.S. providers of email services need not comply with probable cause warrants by disclosing in the U.S. 
electronic communications stored abroad? Well, I think my personal opinion, and I speak for myself here and not for my client, is that we do have a, a situation of a statutory lacuna. Uh, we have a statute that was devised in 1986, well before anyone had the idea that people would be storing years of email uh, with a provider, let alone that that information would be stored overseas uh, in many cases for many different reasons. Uh, no one foresaw the rise of, of these giant internet companies that do business everywhere. So we have really a novel set of problems. And again, the issue that the court has to confront is one of statutory interpretation and what is the correct reading of, of the Stored Communications Act as it stands right now. And in my mind, the presumption against extraterritoriality uh, uh, is decisive here. And again, I, I truly do believe that, that the, the uh, interests of Ireland as the place where the data is being stored are being impacted in the scenario here where uh, Microsoft is being asked to retrieve information that is in Ireland and therefore subject to Irish law, even if it might be its decision to do so. Uh, so in view of, of Irish interests being implicated and uh, that background presumption against extraterritoriality, I think the correct outcome is to say that, uh, uh, again, as a legal matter, that the Stored Communications Act does not authorize this. As a policy matter, however, that creates a big problem. And as I mentioned earlier, regardless of who wins this case on what which theory, whether it's Microsoft or the U.S. government, we have a significant public policy problem uh, in this country with providing U.S. law enforcement access to information stored overseas and with providing foreign law enforcement access to information stored with U.S. providers. And again, this case cannot resolve that tension uh, in part because there's going to be some foreign providers uh, of interest to the United States who are going to be beyond our jurisdictional reach. And Microsoft in its uh, uh, brief, you know, uh, uh, raises the Swiss email company that operates in Switzerland and has no presence in the United States or frankly anywhere outside Switzerland. So to the extent that a bad actor is storing their email on this service, you need the help of the Swiss, right? Which is why we do need uh, statutory efforts in Congress and we need international efforts to solve this problem, right? There's always going to be uh, uh, services that a, a bad actor can go to to try to offshore their data to get away from uh, law enforcement. So to close those loopholes, uh, it requires positive legislation. So that's what I would say. Many thanks for that. Uh, ben, the last word is to you. Why do you believe that U.S. providers of email services like Microsoft should comply with probable cause warrants by disclosing data stored abroad? And, and I will answer that question, I think, by talking about what led my office and, and I think many other state attorney generals to, to get involved in this case. And in, our, in the Vermont Attorney General's Office, we have a uh, what's known as Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force. And, and their uh, job is to investigate and prosecute uh, child online sexual exploitation. And they, they do this uh, all day long, every day. And, you know, what, how this issue came to us was in the context of those investigations where we were investigating people in Vermont who were using 
uh, online communication services to sexually exploit children. Uh, you know, and we know we had done an investigation. We figured out who these individuals were and what they were, you know, had a sense of what they were doing and showed probable cause that it was a violation of, of state law and that they were using their uh, Gmail accounts, as it was in these cases, to to commit these crimes. And and the only and so we got to court. Court issued a warrant. We serve it on the provider. And despite the fact that it's it's a U.S. provider, the information can be accessed from in the United States. All the relevant conduct is happening in our jurisdiction. Uh, the response was because of the Second Circuit Microsoft's decision that you know, we've decided to move this data on, on servers around the world, and so we can't uh, we can't provide you this data. You know, notwithstanding that it could help locate victims and and prevent additional crimes, and that that was sort of our window into this issue and how we got involved. And I know there's a lot of other uh, you know there's a lot of other issues floating around this case, but you know, we felt that 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 outcome uh, was not, you know, it was frankly felt, felt pretty outraged by that outcome and that the, whatever else the Congress in 1986 envisaged when they passed the Historic Communications Act, that that was not something <laughs> that they would have countenanced. And so, uh, you know, we do think the law needs to be updated and, and that the Cloud Act it would be a great step forward. But I think the uh, the results that flow from the Microsoft decision, if the Supreme Court were to, were to affirm, would be would be very negative for public safety, and and that's why we've asked them, along with uh, the U.S. government, to reverse. Thank you so much, Benjamin Battles and Vivek Krishnamurthy, for an illuminating, subtle, nuanced, and extremely educational discussion of this fascinating case involving digital privacy, international application, and the future of stored communication. Ben, Vivek, thank you so much for joining. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Today's show is engineered by David Stotts and produced by Ugana Etze and Scott Pomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich, Madison Poulter, and Ugana Etze. The National Constitution Center is offering continuing legal education credits for select America's town hall programs. Could there be a more thrilling, delightful, and entertaining way of attaining your necessary credits if you're a lawyer and need them. Credit is available for in-person events and on-demand courses. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash CLE for more information. The National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, engagement, passion, and devotion to lifelong education of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.